You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. Arrhythmia is an irregular heart rhythm disorder and the cause of up to 100,000 sudden cardiac arrests in the UK each year. 80% of these deaths could be avoided if more people were aware of their heart rhythm and not just their heart rate. Something as simple as knowing your pulse can save your life or reduce your risk of a debilitating or life-threatening atrial fibrillation-related stroke. Trudy Loban, MBE, is founder and trustee of the Arrhythmia Alliance. Your pulse is telling you how slow or how fast your heart rate is and your heart rate should be somewhere ideally between 60 and 100 beats per minute. But also when you're feeling your pulse, you will feel whether your heart rhythm is actually in rhythm. And this is vitally important because our heart rhythm or our arrhythmia can detect many, many different conditions some of which are simple palpitations, but others can prove to be potentially fatal. And the most common heart rhythm disorder is called atrial fibrillation, or AF. The healthiest of people can develop AF, or the unhealthiest of people can develop AF. We don't know why this suddenly happens in some individuals and not others. Truly, the key message of your World Heart Rhythm Initiative is don't miss a beat, encouraging us all, whatever our age, to do a simple pulse check. I know you're asking us not to overburden our health service by rushing to our doctors to get a pulse check, but to do it ourselves. It only takes 30 seconds. It's so simple that people of all ages, young and old, can learn how to do it and we have details on our word on health website if you detect something untoward then of course you should contact your doctor for further tests looking ahead if you are then diagnosed with an irregular heartbeat what does the future look like for some it can be managed and in some cases even cured with the various treatment options whether that's drug treatments or surgical treatments and it's important to discuss the options that are suitable for you as the individual with your doctor putting you in the picture this is word on health with paul pennington According to the British Heart Foundation, being a smoker could make it more likely that you'll catch COVID-19. That's partly because smokers touch their face more often, meaning they can become infected more easily. And as we know, smoking damages our lungs, making smokers more vulnerable to severe illness from respiratory diseases, including COVID-19, as well as increasing their risk of heart disease, cancer and premature death. Whilst one million less smokers is something to celebrate, there are still over six million of us for whom smoking is a hard habit to break. Dr Hilary Jones is a GP with a special interest in smoking cessation. Non-smokers often say, well, surely it's just a question of having a bit of willpower and giving up. Actually, the addiction is extremely strong and shouldn't be underestimated. And withdrawal symptoms are very nasty and unpleasant indeed, including irritability, feeling tense, aggressive, irrational, having disturbance of sleep, having trouble with memory and concentration, increased appetite, constipation, depression, so many things, plus the cravings. You can imagine trying to beat all this at once. It's difficult and therefore people need help. And that's why us health professionals are there to lend a hand. Dr Jones, there's a huge amount of resource available locally to enable us to give up smoking. What are your top tips for giving up? The first thing to do is to make a mental note of all the benefits that will come your way if you successfully quit. So look at the health benefits, the the benefits to your lungs, to your heart, 
um, to all the other cancers and problems that are associated with smoking, that the risk of peripheral vascular disease, which cause you to have amputations if you smoke a lot of cigarettes for a long time. Think of all those things. And then think of the social benefits to quitting, the fact that you're free of this chemical poison and this habit that a lot of people find unpleasant. Think of the money you'll save. Think of the fact that you'll have more stamina, more energy, that your children will be pleased that you've given up if you've got children. I think if you remember all these things and decide that this is something that is in your control and in your willpower and that with a bit of help you can successfully do, I think it's important not to say to yourself, I will never see or touch another cigarette again, because that is a kind of deprivation and torture, which psychologically isn't helpful. But if you say, I choose not to have a cigarette today, I'll do the same tomorrow. I could if I wanted to, but I choose not to. That tends to be a more positive mental message for oneself. And, and I think people are more successful if they don't deprive themselves. They just feel that they are in control of what used to be a bad habit. And if they use the counselling services of a doctor or a nurse that's working in a quit smoking clinic, they're more likely to succeed than using willpower alone. And on top of that, if you use nicotine replacement therapy, again, your chances of quitting successfully are increased. We know that people using willpower alone, only 3% or fewer will be smoke-free after a year. But if they use counseling combined with nicotine replacement therapy in one form or another, probably 17 people in 100 or more could be smoke-free within that year. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. As recent research has shown, far too many of us, particularly in the 40 to 60 year age group, are unhealthily overweight. According to the World Health Organization, obesity-related conditions worsen the effect of COVID-19 and those of us with heart disease and diabetes are at higher risk of COVID-19 complications. Dr. Jill Jenkins is a GP and medical journalist. If you're just 5 kilograms overweight, you're twice as likely to get type 2 diabetes. If you're 8 kilograms overweight, you're three times as likely. People with this condition are twice as likely to die early. Even if you just reduce your weight by 5%, that's perhaps half a stone if you're in the moderately overweight range. That will reduce your risk of diabetes, of heart disease, of high blood pressure by a significant amount. So even just losing a small amount is worthwhile. So we really have to think a little bit more about our futures and what we want from life. For a great many of us, lockdown has presented its own challenges to lose or maintain a healthy weight. Surveys tell us that a great many of us know that that our lifestyles are contributing to potential health problems. To save ourselves and reduce the future burden on the NHS and the public purse, we need to take action now. Whatever your age, taking back control of your weight and reducing your body mass doesn't have to be arduous when it comes to changing your diet, as Dr Jackie Lavin, head of nutrition at Slimming World, explains. It's just having that confidence that they can cook healthy meals that the whole family is going to enjoy. And it doesn't have to be really complicated dishes. I think the most important thing is to find out what are your family favourites and look at some of the ingredients you can change or the way of cooking, grilling, poaching instead of frying. We know that a lot of people worry about trying to lose weight weight because they think they have to have small portions of everything and they're going to go hungry. We try and help educate which healthy foods they can have more of, like fish, lean meats, poultry, potatoes, pasta, loads of fruit and veg. Fill up on those, they're absolutely fine. But then there are some foods that you do need to limit, chocolate, your crisps, your alcohol. The benefits of adding just 30 minutes of socially distant brisk walking per day with a better dietary intake are well documented, not just on reducing waistlines, but also on improving our mental health. A key aspect 
aspect, alongside discipline to achieving our goal to becoming leaner, fitter and healthier, is support, as Dr Jill Jenkins reminds us. It's very, very difficult to lose weight on your own. You need to have the help of those around you, your friends, your family, your colleagues at work. Tell them what you're doing. Tell them why. Get them involved. They probably need to lose weight as well. So if they're going to help you, you will succeed much more. You will be able to get to the goals you're aiming at. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. An astonishing 21 million adults in the UK would or are considering having a cosmetic procedure, with an increasing number of men looking to improve an aspect of their appearance at the hands of a cosmetic practitioner. But, claims Max Murison, a consultant plastic surgeon and member of the British Association of Plastic Reconstructive Surgeons, whatever your gender is, it's important to take your time and do your research properly before you take the plunge. The first person they should really talk to would be their general practitioner, because they'll know who in the area, they'll know who's good, they'll have seen the results of a number of practitioners and they will refer to somebody they feel is the most appropriate. And the GPs will also have a handle on the qualifications of the people that are providing these services. Max, a number of GPs are, for very good reason, anti-cosmetic procedures, so what advice would you give those of us who are seeking to self-refer? The information they should glean from the practitioner would be the number of cases that they've done. They need to see photographs of befores and afters. And the practitioner should have examples of where it hasn't actually turned out as good as everybody had hoped because in this line of work, every now and again, something will go wrong. Of course, these days, the internet is where a great many people turn to to find information. What's your view and what you'll find there? It can be very one-sided and you have the practitioners that advertise on the internet and only show and talk about fantastic results. And then you have the discussion groups that only talk about when things go wrong and the truth lies between the two. I know it's important to ensure that practitioners you're looking at belong to one of the approved recognised bodies and that they have adequate medical insurance. And you should also discuss all the what-if questions with them. Over the past five to ten years, we've seen a boom in cosmetic tourism. By that, I mean people travelling abroad to try and cut the costs of certain procedures. What's your view on that? The problem with going abroad for treatment is that there's nobody nearby for aftercare. We see in our practice a significant number of patients every year that have come back from South Africa, from Greece, from Poland with significant problems. We've had people come back still having drains in their wounds and they end up in the NHS trying to get the surgery sorted out. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Recent statistics show that our whole nation is getting angrier. But as Mike Fisher from the British Association of Anger Management explains, there's a big difference between someone letting off a bit of steam and someone for whom anger is a problem. There are a huge amount of individuals who can self-regulate their feelings and emotions. Individuals like that tend to be more emotionally intelligent or tend to have higher self-esteem. People who tend to shoot from the hip and who tend to get aggressive and angry or not able to self-regulate might have low self-esteem or they might be suffering from the thing that we call toxic shame, meaning a lot of their anger is self-defense anger. They find themselves reacting instantly to situations where they feel being criticized or feeling shamed or blamed. How much does our binge drinking and drug taking culture contribute to the rise in the cases associated with anger? A lot of people who experience high levels of anger use alcohol to sublimate their feelings. We actually have a very high percentage of individuals who come to our programs and they tend to only be angry when they are drunk. 
People who do cocaine tend to get very aggressive when they're tripping out and very high. People who use marijuana tend to use the marijuana to anesthetize themselves. It's very similar to alcohol. But of course, alcohol can also be an inducer of aggression. So it is a massive, massive problem in our culture. Your association exists to help people manage their anger. Talk me through the principles of what you advocate. The first rule of anger management is to stop, think, take a look at the big picture. Often situations are where I'm not even aware of what might be going on for the other person. The second rule, it's okay to have a different opinion. It's not about being right or wrong, it's about being able to agree to disagree. The third rule, I think, is one of the more important rules is listen. A lot of people who are angry don't know what it means to actually hear the other person. The next rule of anger management is to use a support network. You cannot manage your anger without reaching out for support. The fifth rule of anger management is to use your anger journal. It helps you not to internalize the anger. The sixth rule of anger management is don't take anything personally. Big problem is a lot of people are angry. They take everything personally, even if it's not personal. And the seventh rule is letting go of your expectations of how other people should be, how you should be, and how the world should be. The world is not a perfect place, so we have to really drop the expectations we have. And the final rule is anger by appointment only. Being very aware of when you actually express your feelings to somebody else who might be very stressed out, and if they then start reacting to you, then it becomes counterproductive. That brings us to the end of this podcast. All that remains is to thank you for listening. If you'd like further information on any of the topics I've covered, visit our website, www.wordonhealth.com. That's www.wordonhealth.com. I look forward to being back with you again very soon. Bye for now. Word on Health, on air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, your personal prescription for your very best of health.